I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Megan Devine, author, psychotherapist, and founder of Refuge in Grief. Title of the book is Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. It's daunting to comprehend how much has already been lost and how much more we're likely to lose. Within a few short weeks, lives have been taken and displaced. We've isolated from friends and family, and important moments have been postponed. Simply said, the world is grieving. For many, facing this level of grief is unfamiliar and overwhelming, and they're unsure how to process the intensity of their emotions and where to turn for support. Megan Devine believes that making the world a better place starts with acknowledging grief rather than seeking to overcome it. She advocates for a revolution in how we discuss loss, personally, professionally, and as a wider community. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, NPR, Washington Post, Harvard Business Review, and Bitch Magazine. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Megan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I think uh, the key, to me, the key sentence is that we have to acknowledge our grief and rather than seeking to overcome it. And I think as a culture, um, I'm assuming you would agree with me as a culture, we don't like to acknowledge our losses, our griefs, our disappointments. We like to cover it up and go on to next, but yet it's still there lingering in our brains and in our hearts and in our stomachs. So this is a big loss that we have to deal with now. What do we do? <laughs> what do we do is sort of the what million do dollar we do? What do we do about all yeah. of this? And I, and I think... You know, I've been talking with people a lot about, you know, what do we do in this unprecedented time of loss and how do we handle this grief? And I I kind of come back to the same things that I've always said, right, which is what you pointed out, that piece you pulled out is acknowledging it, acknowledging that we're grieving, acknowledging that we are losing things. And that seems so sort of duh. (laughs) <laughs> right, like, yeah. what, why does that matter? Why does it? Why does? What does it do to acknowledge that we're in pain? And I, and I, I think you're right. Like, we don't, we don't talk about what hurts, and there are so many reasons for that. I could spend hours talking about the reasons for that, but I think the two main ones are, um, we we have such a positive thinking culture, right? All of our stories are stories of transformation. Right, the hero has something bad happen to them, but they're strong and they persevere and they come back better than before. And and sometimes that's true, right? But that I think that storyline and that focus on resilience and transformation and being positive silences us um, because we're we're sort of not we're not doing things correctly if we're sad or if we're lonely or if we're we're having um, feelings around losing things, right? We're not being happy. And we're not being positive. And, and I think that's, that's sort of it in a nutshell, right? That we're just, uh, yeah, uh, we're I just think not for, used to being sad. We're not used to being sad. And I, I, I'm just sort of putting in my personal piece here. But I, I am not a sad person. I'm one of these people who doesn't like to be reactive. I like to be proactive. I, you know, something bad happens. I try to turn it into something good. But... Over the course of these past, what is it, two months, eight weeks, um, those emotions have evolved. And sometimes I will wake up and think, what has happened? That You know, what really is happening here? And I really need to address that. Um, and I think that happens to different people at different times, obviously, depending on their personality, their circumstances. But I think 
it, before you can really go on to next and not we're not going back to the way it was, you have to be able to do that. You know, I mean, and yeah. It, it's yeah. Um, I don't. Maybe you could give us examples of different experiences. I feel you know you talked about resilience. Um, my resilience comes from the other losses that I have had in my life and how I overcame them or how I went through them, I should say, um, helps me to be managing this loss. I I think that's probably true of most people. Yeah, I think there's great nuance in there, right? I, I think one of the things that we tend to do is apply resilience to others or apply it to ourselves instead of it sort of coming natively. What, it sounds like what you just described is, you know, when, when we're facing so many losses and the loss of life as we knew it and not having any sense of certainty about the future, we can draw on, like, what I heard you say is I draw on um, the strengths that I've learned in adversity, the ways that you know yourself, right? And that's a very different thing than if you called a friend and you said, I woke up this morning feeling so overwhelmed about the state of the world. Um, and what it's going to look like. And they came back with, you just need to be resilient. That's a very different situation, right? That's sort of a, um, a dismissing somebody else's pain by telling them to buck up and do better. And again, it, it's, it's sort of a, in a way, a subtle difference. Do you claim resilience for yourself because of who you are and what you know? Or is resilience applied to you as a prescription? from an outside source, whether that's a friend or a family member who wants to be supportive or because you believe that you shouldn't be feeling the way that you're feeling. I think another piece to that is unpredictability. That I think that is just, I think all of us, the, the unpredictability of this is so all-consuming in a way because you sort of getting through this, you one thing, there are lots of things in our lives, and one thing may be a little more predictable than others. And then the next day you find out, uh-uh, this isn't going to happen or something else is yeah. going to happen. And it's day, it changes day by day. Um, yeah. And that really, yeah, that takes a toll. Maybe you can comment on that. It really does. And I, I think this is, the, this is one of the reasons that we're seeing people sort of chase and decide that they don't need to keep distance or it's okay if I go here, sort of uh, justifying breaking the best practice right now. It's because we, we like a horizon line, right? We don't like to not know what's coming next. And because things change so rapidly, because we have no idea um, what's going to be coming today or the next day, it's, it's really disorienting. Right? This is why I think sometimes mindfulness practices can be really helpful because we, we sort of go, I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but this moment, in this moment, I know that I'm here and I feel my feet on the floor. Right? I, I think that that sort of practice can give us a horizon line and that helps with that feeling of disorientation. I want to come back to you, though, like acknowledging that this is hard, acknowledging that this is not not the way that we that we're accustomed to living and not a way that's comfortable. I sort of look to those those countries and those cultures where there's constant war and conflict. And I've always sort of looked from the outside and said, how do you go about daily life when there's violence all around you and it's unpredictable? And the 
you know, humans find a way to find ritual and familiarity inside chaos. It's sort of what we do. And we aren't accustomed to that. Yeah. Right? We don't, we don't usually, we usually have a pretty safe environment, safe and predictable environment. Uh, one of the things that I found really interesting sort of as a, a social researcher watching um, how long it took for news outlets to run anything other than a virus story, right? There's still mostly like 90% virus stories, but it was probably six or so weeks before there was even one story amongst 100 on a front page that had um, nothing directly to do with the virus. And so, you know, I don't know what I take from that, but like around six weeks or so in my very small sample size for their, for sort of normal life to make a foothold, right? How long yep. does it take us to find rhythm inside chaos? And I think that's different for every person. And maybe that's something we can look for during this time is where do I find my own rhythm inside this chaos? I think we rhythm inside chaos, I like that expression. That's a great expression. Yeah. And I also, I, sort of going along with this, I'm trying to find routine but not routinized and there's a difference because mm, I and, yeah. and that's I, I sort of had that realization yesterday and I'm thinking yes you do need a routine um, like a routine rhythm not chaos but not routinized either because that gets uh, to me gets um, unsettling depressing not something I want to get into mm-hmm. yeah so tell me what you mean by routinized just doing the same thing every day. You establish your new boundaries. You establish like what you have, whatever your situation is. And everybody has a different situation. But you don't want to be, as you say, chaotic. You So you have breakfast. You do your work. You go outside. You exercise. You or talk to your friends or whatever you And that's fine. But if you do it the same way exactly every single day, that really becomes monotonous in the context of things being monotonous because we can't go outside. Mm. We can't go to the things that we usually do. So just change it around a little. Don't do this. Maybe not do the exercise the same thing every day. That's what I mean by routinized. Um, Yeah. So it sounds like sort of going into like a, a mental and physical lockdown. Right. And this yeah. is this is actually something that's sort of pulling us back to where we started in the beginning between like positive thinking and um, acknowledging loss. I think I think a lot of the times we, we sort of get into that all or nothing black or white thinking. Right. Like it's either chaos or it's completely controlled or it's um, drawing on resilience and positive thinking or we're sitting in a corner by ourselves wearing sackcloth for all eternity because we're sad and grieving, right? Like there's a middle ground in all of these things. And I I love what you just said there, like find a rhythm, acknowledging that there is a lot of chaos and that uh, some stability can be grounding. And that's really useful. Undifferentiated chaos is hard to live in, right? (laughs) And locking yourself into a very small box, right? So for example, like I, live alone with my dog and I'm very strict on social distancing and, and all of these things. And it would be really easy to sort of close down and be like, I only use this room in the house and I make these three things for dinner because I know it would be very easy to have a fear response or allow the, the gravity of the situation to um, make a really deep contraction. Right. 
And so what I hear you saying, and I think what we're both saying, is like finding that middle ground between full-on expansive mode where nothing matters and you're just like, this is fine, everything is fine, I can do whatever I want, versus the full contraction, which is like, everything is terrible, it will always be terrible, I can never do anything, will not move, must you know, take 14 steps to the refrigerator every day. Um, finding that middle ground for yourself, and it's going to change day by day, right? And, and you know, for me, I come back to acknowledging for ourselves, what, what do I really feel right now? If today I wake up and I feel really sad about the state of the world and what it means for my personal life, then I'm going to feel sad. And I'm going to ask myself, so what do, you, what do you need while you feel sad? What do you need to feel supported in this sadness, which is a very different question than how am I going to get out of this? I can't feel sad. Sad is, sad is not the thing that I'm supposed to do, right? So when you take that moment to sort of ask yourself, what am I feeling in this moment and, and how do I need to care for myself within this feeling? That is a very different question than how do I get myself out of this? And, you know, in the, in the best of times, trying to pretend you don't feel what you feel is exhausting in the best of times. And this is not the best of times. This is not the best of times. And so this is, this is the a worst really of good times. Time to <laughs> How about acknowledging? Yeah, in, in, in <laughs> some sense. maybe the yes, worst absolutely. of times. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it might depend on who you ask, but yes, it's, it's, <laughs> this is an incredibly, incredibly challenging time that is changing life as we know it. And how are what we about, going to I, get it, I want to ask ourselves. you about the because yeah. this, what you're saying sort of segues segues into this. But how do you? I mean, I think one of the, the questions that you answer, um, perhaps in your book, how to find hope when the situation is hopeless or feels hopeless. I've always had this kind of negative sort of feeling towards. I'm not a hoping and a wishing kind of person. Like hope yeah. is yeah. And so, what do we mean by hope in the context of this pandemic? I love that you said that because I am also not a hope person. And every time somebody says, you have to have hope, I'm like, in what? Yes. Right? Like, hope is a word that needs an object. You have to hope in something. I can't hope for positive outcomes. That is not how I'm made. I also, uh, you know, in my own personal life with the, the, um, the death of my partner and doing the work that I do and seeing so much loss and so much suffering, like, I can't do that sort of Pollyanna, everything will work out fine. That's not accurate. It's not inaccurate, but it's not accurate. So hope is a tricky subject for me. And so instead of hoping for a positive outcome, which again, for me, and it sounds like Aldo for you, yay, go team, uh, doesn't really feel real. I look at hope in how I live something, right? I can't hope that this will all work out for the best. It already hasn't for some people. What I can hope is that I find a way to um, companion myself and stay true to myself and be a loving support to the people that I care about. I can hope that I come through this with um, a sense of rootedness and connection, especially during a time of isolation. So for me, I look for hope in how um, how I survive something, how I get through something, how I live it, rather than what the outcome might be, because the outcome is not up to me. But caring for myself is up to me. How did how you that, care for yourself? For you mentioned you that you lost your partner. Yeah. I mean, which, mm-hmm. so can you share some of that, those, that experience, sure. those feelings with us? Yeah. Sure. Because you got through yes. it. Or, yeah. Well, I survived. Are, 
and integrated, right? Yeah. So I, I think the big thing is is that we think that grief gets overcome, right? In our overcoming culture, right? Like you look on the bright side, remember your memories, all of this stuff, and and there should be a time when you go back to your normal, happy self, and that is that is not accurate um, for for most people. So. Um, coming up on 11 years now, which is crazy. Uh, but 11 years ago, my I was in private practice. I was getting sort of tired of sitting in my office and listening all day. And my partner and I were just figuring out how I could close the practice and sort of take some time to reflect. And he was going to take over financial support of our family so that I could do that. And we never got a chance to do that because Matt died in an accident literally two days after we made the decision to close my practice. And everything went sideways, right? Like I've been a therapist for a long time when Matt died and I dealt with a lot of loss in my own life and with my clients. And this was orders of magnitude different, right? I mean, I I, I think that there is a a deep usefulness in transforming your pain into beautiful, useful things for yourself and others. This was not one of those times, right? Two days after Matt died, people were telling me, you're going to be such a great therapist out of this. How dare you, right? As though, one, I wasn't a good therapist before and that somebody needed to die in order for me to be good at my job. So the things that we say to people in the depths of their pain are at best not helpful and at worst deeply damaging, deeply damaging to our connections and our relationships, right? So what I learned during those days and weeks and months after Matt died um, was that we really don't deal with grief well in this culture, especially losses that we, that we don't expect, right? So my work is largely in suicides and accidents and violent crimes and um, acts of nature and deaths that are sort of outside the natural order of things as we understand it in the Western world. And it, it's made me um, really curious about how we acknowledge and don't acknowledge pain on a lot of different levels. So you asked, your question was, how did I get through? And I got through by being a mess. I got through by letting myself be go dark in a way, right? To feel the intensity of what I had and to find others with whom I could say how much this sucked and how much it hurt and just have them hear it. And that doesn't seem like it would help, but that acknowledgement was the only medicine that got me through, right? And then other things with like good sleep hygiene and getting as much rest as I could and moving my body as I was able, those things are all really important to reduce suffering. But that central pain itself, it needed acknowledgement. And when I found that, that is what I held on to. And that's what let me survive. The people that acknowledging the pain, um, and you said there were so many people there who obviously are saying the wrong things. Did you seek, were you able, did you seek out uh, uh, the support from people that you thought would be able to understand what you were going through or did they come to you or how, you know, in the midst of all of that? I think both things are true. So one of the things that happened for me and for, for many of the people that I've spoken with is the people they thought would be great supporters were actually very bad at it and people they didn't expect were amazing. For me, a lot of the, you know, my, my core group of people, they were amazing. 
right? They, we, we already had relationships where we could talk about difficult things. Um, many of my friends uh, have chron- chronic illnesses, so we were sort of accustomed to talking about unfixable situations. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of people were just unintentionally cruel, best of intentions, right, but really, really not helpful. So many people would walk up to me and say, I got divorced last year, it's the same thing, and you really need to go do X, Y, and Z because it helped me, sort of this prescription based on their own experience, which is is just so vastly clueless in so many ways. I don't say to somebody who's like, child was killed in a school shooting that I got divorced and I know just how you feel, but we do that, right? Like we compare losses thinking that we are helping. And it, uh, another thing it I really think people was, say, yeah. well, I was, you know, one of the other things that I hear people say is, I can't imagine what how awful mm-hmm. this is for you. Sort of trying to separate themselves. That always bothers me. Like, yes. that, why can't you imagine it? Of course, it could happen to any yeah. one of us. I, I, that, right. That, yeah, that's one of the. That's just I love something this about that, you because you're you're saying you're saying things that also irk me, um, <laughs> and that I go into this a lot in the book. Actually, that that like, what is that when we say I can't imagine? Well, the the truth is that. Um, neurobiological, we already started to imagine, right? Because this is what mammals do. We we connect and we relate. And when, you know, if I'm sitting with somebody whose um, sister was killed crossing the street at a marked crosswalk, right? I know how easily that could be me or somebody I care about. And I start to feel that. I start to feel what it would be like to lose my person in a random accident on a normal, ordinary Tuesday. I start to feel that and I go, nope, that couldn't be me. That wouldn't be me, me, me. That wouldn't be me because I always look both ways. Because I always do this. Because I always do that. And you're right. We're distancing ourselves. We're making ourselves feel safe. So when you look at somebody, and this is sort of linguistic nuance here, but when you look at somebody who's in great pain and you say, "I can't imagine," well, yes, you could. Yeah. And at the same sense, like we can't ever feel what it's like to be another person, right? And I say this sometimes: if you know, if if a family loses, you know, a dad. If there are three or four siblings, they all lost a different person. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, we can't imagine what it is like for, for my sister to have lost her dad. I lost my dad, but we had a different relationship. So I think, you know, getting tricky here, both of those things are true. One, we, we can't imagine what it's like to lose somebody to a random act of life. And it's important to understand that we are connected that way. And that exactly. could be a, a, a jumping off point for our empathy, and I also hate to interrupt now. Like. We have one. Yeah, I, sure. I could go on and on talking to you, but we have one <laughs> minute left. So I want to just say, yeah, because people want to connect with you more. So it, it, it's okay that you're not okay meeting grief and loss in a culture that doesn't understand. If you want to connect more with Megan, Megan Divine, get the book. Uh, Megan, give us a website where we can go to so we can, people can continue the conversation with you because it's really important. Yeah, and there's so much to talk about, right? Yeah. So uh, refugeingrief.com is the website, and you'll find resources there for grieving people and for people who want to be supportive, right? Being a better support, either whether it's to a friend or a family member or a client, super important. So refugeingrief.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Refuge in Grief. And look for the PBS documentary, Speaking Grief, which comes out this month. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show. You are so welcome. Yeah. 
I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm.